The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good afternoon, you are tuned to Ice Topka on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is me, Simon Tishko, and on today's Ice Topka, we spend a very pleasant Sunday afternoon in polite conversation with Mr. Dudley Sutton. And those of you who have seen the Village Notice Board will know that Mr. Sutton has officially been a national treasurer for several years now. Therefore, we reminisce back over 60 years of his theatrical, stage, screen and artistic career. Dudley has worked with everyone. He knows everyone. Dudley is a treat all round, as I'm sure you'll all know and agree. Um, Last time Dudley was on the show, we were with Dudley in Russia at the very end of the 1950s with the Joan Littlewood Theatre Group. And um, I think we travel a little bit with Joan today where we'll end up in New York and always around there. But Let's leave the actual explanation up to Dudley and pin back your lovely Resonance FM ears and listen to Polite Tea, Polite Treat. Do, so just stick that on. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm alright. Sunday. A bit weary. Yeah. Weary of the world. A world of news. A week of news. Weird. I love Cameron warns Putin. Oh. <laughs> this is so bizarre. This is so bizarre. You look at the map. I looked. At, I've got a school atlas, which is kind mm. of better than those photos because it gives you a huge picture of how massive Russia is and how relatively small England is. I think Cameron um, negotiates the world geographically in the UKIP mindset world. Very likely, very likely. In which case Britain is absolutely massive and there's a few foreigners outside. I think there's a flea on the back of uh, Putin and he might flick it off on the back of the Russian bear. Mm. I don't know, it just... I mean, the difficulty is... If you look at it from the point of view of Russia, I think that the trouble started with NATO. Because NATO went into the Baltics. When are we talking? Oh, in the Just ages. recently. No, just recently. I mean, they, the, Bal- the Baltic regions after the collapse of the Soviet Union okay, became so part was, of NATO. That was, that was an aggression on behalf of NATO, Ooh. which terrified the backside off the Russians. They made the Russians very, very defensive. I'm not sure. I am. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm saying I'm not sure. In that. Tell you what we should do. I'd like to say, welcome to Istok, Godadli. You said it. You just said it. Exactly. See? You, you didn't even said, notice. You just said it. But did you notice that I just slipped it in there professionally like David Frost would? Well, I did, but um, I wasn't impressed by David Frost either. Oh, either. See, double-edged sword, double-edged no. sword. Um, before we set the world to right... Only because David Frost used to live opposite me in Carlisle Square and when he had a party, the place would be surrounded with police with submachine guns. I mean, he wasn't that bad. Come on, guys. What, were they trying to pick him off? I don't know. 
There was a lot more police shootings people in those days, weren't there? Was there? No, I just made that up. I made that up. Do you? Why did you make that up? Because the number of the films I've seen you in, you've often been a gangster. But that paid off once, actually. Years ago, I got a letter um, assigning me to jury duty. Mm. And I wish I'd gone, but I didn't. Uh, I decided not to. So on a Saturday morning, I rang them up, rang the jury service. And this very refined voice sounds in, hello. I said, oh, hello, my name's Dudley Sutton. I said, I've been uh, uh, required for jury duty. Oh, right, yes. Um, is there a problem? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, I'm pretty well known on the television for playing gangsters. Mm. So it would be a... He said, oh, no, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Don't you worry. Leave it with me. Mm. How did you get through to me? I said, well, it's just... And just rang up. He said, oh, this is my private home. I'm actually Lord so-and-so in charge of the whole thing. How but bizarre. anyway, so I never heard, never had to do jury duty. And I wished I had done it because mm. I liked to, but I couldn't at that time. Yeah. Because I was too well known for playing hoodlums. <laughs> <laughs> so fame does work for you sometimes. Of course. Mm. Anyway, where have we got to? Well, we're just, just introducing and settling down. And right. interestingly, we're in your new home in Chelsea. Yes, and I was hoping to go from Chelsea out into the world so right. we could go back to the Balkans via Chelsea and end up in the Chelsea Arts Club. Well, I always call it, when the, shall we listen to what the grown-ups are doing? Six o'clock news. Bip, 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 that's when the grown-ups come on. Really? Yeah, that makes grown, sense. Yeah, the grown-ups talk such nonsense and they don't play games and enjoy themselves. They, they always have to be grown-up and put suits on and disagree with each other and warn each other. I mean, the, the notion of um, Cameron warning Putin is really quite farcical. I think I can't see Putin's too worried. I think we need to look at it from the point of view of Russia. We need to look at it from that point of view. I was saying half the problem with the, the way that we look at the world is that the atlas is in a particular way and the north is north and the south is south. And that's magnetic north. It's nothing to do with political north. And if you turn it on its side, you get a very different view of Russia's relationship with Europe than if it's vertical. Russia's relationship with Europe. So if you were to turn on its side, because at the moment Russia is up to the right. To the right, yeah, to the right. At sort of two o'clock. Yeah, about six pages of it to the right, and there's one page of Europe. Yeah. And the thing is that, um, always remember that Napoleon got to Moscow. I was in St. Petersburg, and I was taken out to where the last Soviet guns were protecting the city from German invasion. And the Germans got as far as Putney from here. Mm. I mean, they were bloody close. That was? Siege of uh, St. Petersburg St. in 1945. Yeah, Leningrad's it was there. Stalingrad? What's the Stalingrad? No, Stalingrad's way down. There's, there's okay, was that going on at the same time? Well, the, um, I the siege of, of Leningrad went on for over a year. Mm when the Germans blockaded and effectively tried to starve them out and largely succeeded. So they managed to get um, tracks across the ice and bring food in at night in the winter. Uh, I mean, it was an extraordinary story. 
But there, my point being that the Russians have a somewhat more jaundiced view of the Germans than we do. Mm. You know, because um, with good reason, good reason. Yeah. I mean, not. I mean, putting a, setting aside the fact they killed more of their own people than the Germans did. The Germans killed more Ukrainians. I mean, the slaughter was massive. It wasn't just Jews, it was everybody. They slaughtered mm. and burned the whole place to pieces. Machine gun people blew them up in churches and slaughtered them. And the Russians do have a more wary view, take a wary view of Germany and therefore Europe. Because they just see, they see Germany being the leading bank, the leading power in Europe. Mm. So I can understand that. I can see when... Um, the Brits turn around and warn them. I think it's very odd. Especially as the Brits are sort of on their way out. I say they, because I don't feel a part oh. of that at all. Out of Europe. Well, I don't know. I don't think they will. I don't think we'll leave Europe. I think it would be so bad for the one almighty thing that governs this land called trade. But um, well, I see. I, I see it there as stumbling out because this such a degree of ineptness and lack of general leadership from any of the political parties that I could see us sort of stumbling out of Europe by accident. But on just... xenophobia. Yeah, and xenophobia. Yeah, I don't, I don't know because I think that the, the gossip mongers and the Daily Mail and so on, when it finally comes, push comes to shove and it affects the amount, the mighty pound note, and pound coins is now, isn't it? Showing my age here, the pound note. Yes, yes. The 20, ten 20 good shillings. 20 fine shillings. Do we still use guineas? In my day, yes, very much so. Now, so do we now? No. So some of your theatrical fees, your no. fees would have been... No, they were mainly medical fees and yeah, professional, professional fees. Professional, that was a way of yeah. getting an extra and, shilling. And women's or? clothes. Women's clothes. Three guineas. Yeah. Sounded posher. It's it was three pounds, heart. three shillings, you know. Yeah, and you pay your Harley Street bills, of yes, course, and guineas. And, and guineas. Yes, guineas. So was that just a way of scraping an extra shilling out of every pound? Yeah, but also a way of showing that you are, you're not indulging in common and vulgar trade mm. like the rest of us. You know. But it's like twenty nine ninety nine. Mm. Sounds kind of better than 30 quid. <laughs> and there's a, in these in these um, Amazon things and all those things online, it's all thirty nine ninety nine, twenty nine ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine, nine ninety nine. Cheap psychology, cheap yes. pop psychology. Yeah, it's weird. But um, no, I'm interested in Russia. I, I I was in Russia in 1957. Well, that's actually where you left us last time you were here on Isotopica because we did your. Amazing trip with Joan Littlewood and Richard Harris oh, that's to right, Russia. Russia. Oh, yeah. the, the, the images you left of yes. the trains with the cross yes. flags on the front yes. and the yes. Russian girls who would say, Beautiful. Yeah, it obviously means not yet. Exactly. Irena. Lovely girls who were. Of course. And after that, we went to America. I think, you know, there's there's. There's a desire to learn about America. Personally, I've never been to America. I think you should go. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it isn't one country. It's every country. It terrifies the life out of me in many respects. No, It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, I went to New York 1960. 
When you first arrive in New York, you think everybody's terribly rude. In actual fact, it's, it's New York humour. It's very direct, it's very in your face. You go out to buy newspapers, they may have the New York Times, please. You don't have to please me. <laughs> At first you think, all right, but then it's, okay, get it. You know. I mean, it's, it's language that's always attracted me. The English language has always fascinated me. And when I first went to New York, I heard this wonderful Jewish banter that goes on in the delicatessens. When you go to buy, you buy something at the counter, the guy at the counter shouts the order through the kitchen window in this wonderful slang. So you say, um, may I have... Um, <coughs> um, uh, let's see, uh, an omelette, please. Two eggs, wreck them. <laughs> on a hamburger, kill an ox. Oh, can I have um, pastrami on on rye? One corny cow, oh, it's corned beef on rye. One corny cow coming through the rye. You know, and you realise that there's this wonderful public humour that you hear, like in the markets and these in the markets throughout our country. Mm. You know, this wonderful humour. When you get onto it, it's just delightful and it cheerful. Mm. And it's very, very funny. And uh, up in um, in New England, where you go to restaurant uh, to cafes that are breakfast cafes that open about four in the morning, close about eleven, you have the New York very dry humour, and you don't notice that until you latch onto it and you get it. You know, you, I, I used to love New York because in New York it'd be called Dudley. Hey Dudley, it's going out tonight. It's going to come on, Dudley. You go down south and say, hey, Dudley. Hey, old Dudley. The language is one of them. And the first time I ever understood Shakespearean punning in my life was when I heard black guys who would take hold of a word and play with it like a medicine ball. They pass it around the room. You know, no, I, my mother lived in New York and I went to see her. And it's a lot, part of the story I'll get into. But um, I wanted to buy a pair of trousers. And I was determined that they wouldn't have pleats. So she said, go on, take us to this shop down in Ninth Avenue. So we go down Ninth Avenue, there's all these guys, these black guys in the shop, a couple of queens with amazing stocking tops they wear to keep the, the, the process in the hair mm -hmm. at night. In the daytime, they were wearing stocking tops with knots on them. And they're, and they're terribly funny. And they're, they're incredibly gay. And not, not all of them, they, they just play with words. And I went in and I said, I like, my, my, my mother said, my son would like a pair of trousers. And I said, yeah, with no pleats. Pleats. With the pleats. Pleats with the treats, with the sweets, with the teats. Mm -hmm. And then, what's the pleats? And they threw the word pleats around the room and cracked up and laughed and laughed and laughed. And it went on and on, developed and developed and developed. And I, for the first time in my life, I understood what Shakespearean punning must have been like. Because the English language, the language in, amongst the black community then in New York was alive and malleable and, and cr being created. Mm. And that was, that's what Shakespearean punning must have been. Because it never makes any sense in, the, in modern productions. You know, where they do all this punning and some professor from Oxford goes, ha, 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 to show that he gets the joke. Mm. And everybody else is sitting there watching the poor actors trying to squeeze a giggle out of this turgid oh, material. Yeah. But um, I remember cab drivers, you know, hey, 
don't tell me, mister, I tell you. I said, look, I want to go. Don't you tell me, Mac, I tell you. I said, I just want to go to the... Listen, Mac, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to the court, court theatre. Then he said, I'll tell you what, you are an actor with aspirations to take the role of Hamlet. Now, where do you want to go? I said, the court theatre. What did I tell you? <laughs> it's lovely. Uh -huh. It's lovely. Then a pregnant woman steps out in front of his cab. He jams his brakes and winds the window down and says, Hey, you can get knocked down too, lady. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. I love it. Uh -huh. I found it incredibly funny. And, uh, what were you doing in New York? What I was doing about? The Hostage play, Brendan Behan's The Hostage. Okay. New York, 1960. We arrived on Labor Day. This is when Khrushchev and Castro had arrived at the United Nations. My mother's got a flat on the east side, and across the East River there's these enormous warehouses run by the Longshoremen's Union. Mm. You know, I thought unions were sort of socialists, not in the States. Not in the States. No. There was this sign written that Khrushchev arrived in a, in a boat called the Baltica, and he's moored down downtown, and opposite the Longshoremen's warehouses on the side of the In giant letters, 30, 40, 50 feet high, go home, red rat. Mm, that was the unions. That was the unions. <laughs> How sad. It was weird. And then you go on the, the circle line, uh, which is the boat around Manhattan, um, called Captain Sheridan, who was an Irish fascist. And he kept slagging Castro. And there, in that hotel on 34th Street, whatever it was, is um, that communist swine, uh, Fidel Castro, with his private brothel. <laughs> I found out the next day, in the newspapers, that somebody had found a, a Coca-Cola bottle on the carpet on its side. They created this sink of iniquity. How did that come from Coca-Cola? Because it had been knocked over in the wild yes, white times yes, the night exactly, before. Exactly. Disgraceful. <laughs> I mean, it was such a weird place to be. But it, again, it was always the language for me. The language fascinated me. And you, you, you say we. Um, were you with a particular theatre group going there? Was that yeah, right? Theatre Workshop, Joan Littlewood. Oh, Joan Littlewood again. Yeah, yeah, Excellent. yes. yes so, so, it was all Joan Littlewood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who's the crew that time? Because you had Richard Harris in Russia, didn't you? Yeah, but I mean, I had lots of people that are not known in Russia as well. I don't want to talk just necessarily about people who are known. No. But Victor Spinetti was there. Lovely. Who I loved, and we got on like a house on fire. And he was very wicked. He's very gay. Mm. He took me around the gay circuit. And I finished up going to meet Tennessee Williams, who I got to know well enough to be able to call, be allowed to call him Tom, which is a great privilege. Uh -huh. And years and years later, I ran into her in London. And he said, oh, darling, for God's sake, rescue me. <laughs> and he was in the Salisbury, which is the theatre pub at the time. Yeah. So I did what, you know, that great dream that everybody wants to do. You go up to Sam, uh, to, to, for Sinatra, you know. Or something. Yeah. So I came in and I saw Tennessee being bored to death by this guy. And I went out and I said, excuse me, excuse me, Frank. I said, Tom, what time do you bloody well call this? 
<laughs> what? I said, what hell time do you call it? I'm sorry, darling, sorry. <laughs> we went outside and cracked up, put him in a cab. Nice. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he'd been very kind to me in New York. I had trouble with the director there. and I was drinking too much at the time. I was all getting a bit confused. That was later. Mm. But Victor was very funny, walking around in a kilt. <laughs> and, and just being out generally outrageous. Victor Spinetti's such a name from the 60s. It yeah. just resonates yeah. with swinging London. The Beatles. And the Beatles and... I went to his memorial recently in the Actors' Church and they had a choir from Swansea singing from the music and drama school. They were wonderful. You realise there's something about Welsh voices that is different, mm. that has got a sort of sparkle to it, an edge to it. Curious. Yeah. And uh, I saw Paul McCartney, I hadn't seen him since the 60s. Mm-hmm. We shook hands. Good solid handshake, unusual with people like him. They usually give you the limp, the limp, limp warm sausages look while they look the other way. And they hate that look the other way. Yes, I can't stand Make it. Make eye contact, man. But, uh, no, New York at that time was quite staggering. First time I smoked a joint was in New York. Excellent place to I was there. working with this, this um, black actor from Harlem. He introduced me to these strange... No, it wasn't the first time, actually. The first time I was back, back in Notting Hill. No, it was... It was. It wasn't. It was the first time I was ever stoned on stage. That was it. Okay. Yeah, that was it quite must extraordinary. Have been quite difficult. Well, it was weird. It was like um, being in slow motion underwater, mm. warm, sailing through it. Luckily, it was a dress rehearsal. I just sort of danced, sailed through it, swam my way through the production. Nobody noticed. But, um, Who was the president then when you got there? Uh, the president then. Oh, it was um, Ike, I guess. Now, let's see, because we were there when Kennedy was running against Nixon. Okay. For the presidency, and I saw Kennedy on uh, the back of a truck down on the east side, um, polit- politicking. And I just remembered teeth, and I remembered thinking Colgate's. So Colgate's ad, there was this personable looking man. I saw him from about 50 yards away. Sparkly teeth. Yeah, with great teeth. Mm-hmm. teeth. And, uh, and against Tricky Dicky, who was very sultry and dark. Yeah, and sweated his way out of the... Yeah, it's a shame way. because they had this great debate in America, um, so-called, what they call debates, where two presidential hopefuls come up against each other. And on the television, Kennedy looked wonderful and Nixon looked shifty. Uh, and he lost the debate on television and on radio he won it mm. you know and I suspect that it wouldn't be a bad thing to spend television broadcasting during elections and just have the radio you know I don't know it's happened several times that the Bush Dukakis had the same the same thing I was over there for that too yeah, Al Gore was terribly uncharismatic, but was kind of so much smarter. But you know, smart's not always what. No, the they don't. They don't, want. they don't want it. They don't the, want the bulk of the land and in inland, they don't want it to be threatened by. Redneck don't want it. They yeah. hate Stevenson because he was intelligent. Stevenson. Yeah, Stevenson was condemned as an egghead. Adley Stevenson. Adley. Back at the time of um, 
uh, Ike, Truman, Nixon, that, that period. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very interested. And when I first arrived in New York, the great, the great thing about foreign countries, you can, well, however false it may be, you can read a political map the moment you get there. You can read the politics very quickly. And I remember thinking that New York politics is very much 17th century Elizabethan drama. There was a politician standing on the steps mm-hmm. with shades, which in itself in England, those days, is sinister. And it was called, On the Steps of, of, of Tammany Hall, Carmine de Sapio. Now, if ever there was a minor character, a minor character mm. from an Elizabethan drama, it would be Carmine de Sapio. Carmine de Sapio is without my lord. Well, give him some. Really? Uh, I mean, do you know, and they slag each other off in public on the radio, which we didn't do. Mm -hmm. I mean, openly. The guy's a liar. What's he talking about? Excuse me? Excuse me, not in England at that time. The the, the polite, the politesse around politicians. Yes, absolutely. It was very funny. So, Minister, what's your view on this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I found it... um, I loved it. I loved Union Square and the old left-wing bookshops long gone. You know, there were so many... And the, and the bars, the bars. Were, so I was very much on the booze in those days with, with, with Brendan Behan and all the Irish. Great uh, drinkers. Oh, and we drank in... Uh, um, oh God, what was he called? It'll come to me. I should have thought of these names before we started. Jim Downey's. On Ninth Avenue, Jim Downey was great old Irish, and we met all the Irish patriots, you know, and, and drank in a bar called Willie's up on Third uh, Avenue, and there was a bar called Ireland's Thirty Two, leaving out the the six counties of mm-hmm. Ulster. And it was all very nationalist, and oh, and there was one great bar. There was a, a very well known one called P.J. Clark's, which was kind of bourgeois hippie stuff. But opposite, there's an Irish bar called Jimmy Glennon's. Jimmy Glennon's was the only place in New York where you could drink standing up. So you had to sit down to drink in New York, which we found a bit odd. Sit down to drink? What in that's that about? There's some liquor laws in those days. We didn't mind because they stayed open for four. I don't care. Yeah, sit Um, down, sit down. But we used to go to Jimmy Glennon's and stand up and sing. Because the Clancy brothers used to come in after their show and we'd all sing Irish ballads half the night. It was just an amazing time, amazing place to be. And every now and again, Jimmy Glennon would bugger off. Yeah. So you just serve yourself. <laughs> what's, your, what's your tip of the day, do you think? In those days, uh, it was Guinness until we went on to whiskey. Yeah. I never drank much beer. I just see the point. I mean, you drink gallons and gallons of liquid. We knew. We were, nowadays everybody drinks wine. <coughs> in the not in the boozers, they all drink wine. Mm. And in our day, they didn't have one. They had a <coughs> they had a disgusting wine called VP, which was kept. Wasn't that fortified wine? 
No, I think it was just a crap wine. But it was kept for the wives on the Sunday when you had to bring your wife in mm. and sit in the saloon the bar. While the la- yeah, while the lads all having a good time in the, uh-huh. in, the, in the public bar playing darts. And you had to sit there with the missus looking grim. Grim. Ah. <laughs> but nobody drank wine and we all drank whiskey. Mm. You know, you'd get through your cure with maybe a pint of Worthington E or an Underberg or the morphine off the top of a bottle of kale in the morphine from the Your chemist cure? across the road. Yeah, the cure from the night before. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that. that. What do you say? Yeah, uh, the milk, the... Not enough for a party, but enough for a cure. <laughs> Very nice. That's yeah. a new one. There are, two type, there are two quantities of drink in the Irish, in the Irish parties, the lashens and the lavens. You got in there, there was lashings of drink. In the morning you woke up and you went around swigging half empty glasses of the Lavens. Mm. <laughs> I can taste cigarette butts. Yeah, I remember having a screeching hangover and walking down Madison Avenue with my great friend Kate O'Connor, who was the musical director of The Hostage, a lovely Irishman. And we were walking down the road and she said, oh, what's the matter? I, said, I just feel so depressed, so depressed. She said, I should think of the poor people in hospital with no feet. <laughs> <laughs> I did what you did. I just burst out laughing. Mm-hmm. This was an extraordinary thing to say. Yeah, really. <laughs> no feet. No feet. Typical Kate response. She had a sort of wonderful innocence for somebody who was a very sophisticated musician. The more drunk she got, the faster and more accurate the reels and the jigs and the reels became. How beautiful. And she could play everything, Chopin, everything. everything. Mm, 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 but she was great on the Irish songs. And we sang and sang a lot in those days. You know, a lot, a lot of songs. Ah, Kate O'Connor. God love her. And Brendan was an extraordinary man to be around. He went and dried out at my mother's place. My mother's place up in New York State. And uh, he went and dried out. Didn't know your mother was American. She wasn't. She became a citizen. She ran away from from all of us at the end of the war. Okay. She ran off with an American colonel oh, in the legal department. It's a twist in the story. Yeah, and he turned out to be quite a shifty sort of bloke. Mm. Uh, connected with the Jewish mafia in New York. Um, my mother's best friend was a guy called Maurice Levy. Maurice Levy, who was one of the most corrupt people ever, owned roulette records. And he died owning the publishing of a lot of songs and never written a song in his life. Uh, he used to make deals with innocent young boys from Harlem, but just by leaving a revolver on his desk and a pink Cadillac outside. Meaning? Meaning he got, the, he got all the money and they got a Cadillac. I don't know how it worked. I don't know how that one worked. I don't know how it worked. I don't understand. I know the music business has changed somewhat, but... uh... Probably not at the top. Yeah. It's it's like the film business. film business is like as not you're working for a money laundry. Yeah, Yeah, that is actually quite a popular way of laundering money, isn't it? Oh, last... Yes, I've not been too much into detail. One of the last films I made... The bloke said, come and meet the backers. <laughs> My dad was in the second-hand car business and in the slot machine business. I know these guys. You know, you can dress them up as backers, if you like. Yeah. They're hustlers, you know. And they're going in there. And he told me if they come in and put a million into the picture, 
If they get half half a million clean out of it, they're quite happy. Right. Or three quarters of a million. But it didn't matter if the film loses money. It's very much like the producers, it sounds like. Very much so. Yeah, Is this the film you had to grow, grow your hair for? What was that one? That was, I remember you showing me pictures. It was, was it a science fiction film? And that one got nowhere. Yeah. Nothing happened. That my imagination. Maybe you showed me pictures in the stock pot and your hair had grown and started putting it together, maybe did some stuff and then nothing much happened. I can't remember. No. You're so busy anyway. How can you remember one project to the I'm next? I'm not busy, it's just I don't remember any. Compared by me, darling, compared to me. Oh. <laughs> no, um, I, I'd like to do more film. I like films. I like mm. filming. I like... There's, there's something special, especially going abroad with films. You go abroad with a, a film company, you're in a different position from a tourist, utterly. Yeah, of course. You know, you're working, you meet the most amazing people. Let's go to the most exotic location. Bit obvious, but I want to talk about the Andrew Cotting. Think about film, Andrew Cotting and this filthy earth. Oh, first. right. Just because I love that. It was such a treat. Most exotic location, probably Antigua. That's I was exotic. in Antigua for three months. Okay. Doing a film which died a death called The Island. Okay. With Michael Caine. I think there are three films called The Island. This one was with Michael Caine. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember. You should ask me about this, to remember this before. Uh, Michael Ritchie directed it and the guy who wrote Jaws wrote it but it nevertheless well, it was went crap. under no it was crap because they weren't interested in the story I was thrilled by it. when I met Michael Ritchie they come over from the States and they stay at the Athenaeum and interview actors so it gives them a chance to bring the wife and the wife can get to see all the shows in the, East, in the West End on expense in the company. Mm. And they sit there in their beautiful shirts and their filter-free, sugar-free lives and mm-hmm. skins. And the director, my agent said to me, I was being very hippie in those days, and I had this beautiful long sweater. You'd appreciate this. The sweater started from up here. Right. And it went up half to my jawbone. It went right below my knees. And now. the sleeves were folded back from at least a yard beyond my hand. <laughs> and it was thick, khaki cables with a built-in like a muff. You with your hands, with hands. It was heavy. I lived in it. Of course. And the agent said, whatever you do when you go to the Athenaeum to meet Michael Richie, do not wear the sweater. Okay. First thing that Michael Richie said to me when I watched it, I love the sweater. He and I get to get on. Well, that's why you're the artist in your agency, agent, <laughs> I guess. He and I got on. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was heaven. I mean, the idea of the script was so thrilling. You go to Antigua for three months. Sure. In the West Indies. We'd never been there before. We smoked every bush on the island. Ah. (laughs) We did. (laughs) And we did some other things as well, which were available. But the notion of the film was that there were these pirates who lived in the mangrove swamps. Present day? Can I just ask? Yeah, 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 sort of present. Well, present day, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And they had been interbreeding for six generations, so they were... 
a little crazy. Mm-hmm. And they were absolutely mad. Yeah. And um, he said, your character is called Dr. Brazil. Love it. The rest of it is up to you. <laughs> so I, I could, by the time I got to Antigua, I walked around in the, in the in the place, and I saw a couple of white guys with corn rolled hair, mm-hmm. and they looked very sinister. So I went to the um, the the lady in the hotel, the cleaner, or the maid, whatever she was. Because she used to corner, they used to, in, in the West Indies, the girls sit there cornering each other's hair in the morning, listening to BG records and playing. Living the life. And living the life, sitting in these little shacks and, and doing this corner. So I went and got my hair cornered. No, I'm sorry, I've jumped. I went to Michael Richard, I said, I want my hair cornered. I said, great. So I went to the makeup department, and this was Hollywood. Yeah. And she spent four hours doing it. And it kept falling out. So I went to Michael Ritchie. I said, you're going to have a problem with the unions on your hands, but I'm getting the maid on her floor in the hotel to do it because she's doing five to ten minutes. She's doing it. So I had my hair cornrolled. And um, and it looked astonishing. Have we got pictures and of this girl? Production I, there's pictures? bound to be some somewhere. I'll have to dig those out. I'll yeah, put this them girl into called, accompany the episode. What's she called? Not Josephine, something Fien. Oh, lovely name. It's the name of a vegetable or flower. Anyway, they were so beautiful. These girls were so beautiful. They had, they'd stand on the door, some long, slim girls. And for hair decorations, they'd have three plastic combs. Stuck in there, those brilliant bright lime green, pink, and blue mm-hmm. hair cone. Or um, pot scourers, plastic pot scourers, like flowers. Beautiful. It is so elegant. It's great, you know? Mm. Anyway, the, the story behind the film was that these pirates would capture and slaughter any boat that came near the island. They very rarely did, but every now and again. No no strangers have been near the island for six, seven generations. Mm. These are originally Portuguese or something. Hence Brazil, Portuguese, Brazil. And I decided that Dr. Brazil, I believed he was a doctor, and he had a, an oil funnel on the end of a plastic thing for stethoscopes, and he had these instruments that he found everywhere, and he was insane about wounds. He got horny about wounds. He almost fucked wounds. <laughs> he loved wounds. Very got so Yeah, very. And um, I was allowed to add lib, and I had lib some a couple of real stormer lines. Bloke gets shot in the top of the mast and his skin falls on the floor. Oh, he has the falling sickness. <laughs> A slight case of dropsy, I think. <laughs> that kind of shit. It's good fun. It was a good laugh. Trump's everybody was stoned. Yeah. And all these hippies came and were imported from uh, from Florida, from Coconut Grove, whatever. They were everybody was stoned. So when they had a fight, it looked like a love-in. So it didn't work. It just didn't work. We had, um, I mean, I could go on about this film forever. Of course. But I won't now. It's in, and we, three months there, in yeah, the summer. Yeah, three months. With the whole crew, cast and crew. And I bought the, 
the ex and the children and the next door neighbour and her children over rented a house up the hill. Christophine, that was the name Christophine, of the Christophine, no. Christophine, lovely name. You said vegetable, I was thinking of colophene, but that yeah, was Yeah, it was like. vegetable or flour or something. Yeah. Um, and I'd met a Welsh guy who was married to, to one of the native women. Uh, she was beautiful, called Cavell, from Nurse Cavell. Yeah. They lived in the village in a, mm-hmm. in a wooden, in a wooden house. We go over for lunch. We met this wonderful Australian actress called Angela Punch. Angela Punch McGregor, because she married McGregor. But she was supposed to be a star of the film. She didn't do star. Australians don't do star. They do, they do it democratic, the Aussies. And the stars were going around being starry, and Angela wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, not giving me any close-ups. I said, well, you've got to start starring out. You've got to start making a few demands and you'll get your close-ups. But she used to stand, <laughs> she used to stand there and said, before I got into this business, she'd stick her hand in her blouse and adjust something. Before I got into this business, I couldn't afford a fox's breakfast. I said, what's a fox's breakfast? She said, piss and a good look round. <laughs> it's a wonderful image. You can yeah. see the steam coming up and the midges. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> It was amazing, amazing girl. I liked her a lot. She couldn't stand the starboard shit. Would you get the starboard? Let's go back to Cotting for a minute. This, Andrew this filthy, Cotting. This filthy earth and that beautiful... Your arse features quite heavily in this, doesn't it? It's beautiful, I remember that. Pointing well, out it was some peculiar idea, I think, that John Berger had come up with. Yeah. That they used to test the temperature of the soil with their arses. Okay. I mean, it's difficult to convey that. It just looks as if I was having a shit. Ah. But in actual yeah. fact, I was testing the temperature of the soil in my bum. Yeah, yeah bum. That's what it was, cause yeah. I was watching it with a friend, and they said, um, see that arse there? It's a friend of mine. Dudley yeah. something. Yeah, you can tell. National treasure. Yeah. Got a <laughs> label, got an address on it. <laughs> I love working. I mean, Andrew Cotting is an artist. Very much so. Yeah. Visual. Oh, wonderful to work with. And you, I don't know, I was talking towards you earlier, I prefer directors who are artists. Mm. I just prefer them like David Jarman, Sally Potter, Ken Russell. They all start from visual art. I much prefer them to the linear guys. Mm. And I always feel more at home and thus more more free, more creative. Jumping out of film to stage, Littlewood, was she an artist? Or what's her role? In she was universal. She was as bigger than it all, wasn't she? Yeah, bigger than everything. Yeah, yeah, she was wonderful. She was extraordinary. But Cotting was fabulous. I mean, I used to know things, and I'd been outside waiting the auditions, listening. I'd never met him. And I heard this bloke doing what all actors do when they play country. They do a thing called Mama Setsha. Oh, I be going down the village for the wonder of all boy who, who like that. Mm-hmm. So um, my turn came. I took my teeth out. It was a good thing. So <laughs> I went in and I started to fucking roar. I was roaring, roaring, killing himself. This guy he was just cracking up. Hey, you fucking Jay, you Tory, you for your fish character in that film. Lovely, raging with anger. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I loved it. Absolutely adored Where's it. Where's that film? Where's the in, location? Uh, up in. Um, 
where the cheese comes from. Winsley Dale. Yeah, up, up the Dales. Okay. It's wonderful. We were out there. We didn't wash for three weeks. It showed. Yes, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Authentic. I, I wish the weather had been worse. It was too good. Uh-huh. Needed a lot more mud. Okay. Because you've got to get away from that Schlesinger far from the that's going on my That's going on my very soon re-watch list, I think. Yeah. Just going yeah. for the projector and I no, think... No, I've uh, done a couple of bits. Filthy Earth would be good. Last time Andrew rang me up and he said, we're doing this film, taking a pedalo, a swan-shaped pedalo. Beautiful film. From Bexley-on-Sea up to the Olympic site. Mm-hmm. This extraordinary man, Ian Sinclair. Why don't you come down... Um, I'll give you 100 quid if you're skinned. That's why I'm skinned, so I'll give you 100 quid. Come down to this place in Kent and pick up, pick up the pedalo. We'll put you out in the pedalo and you can spout your poem about old age. So put him in a sow in a sou-wester. I remember that. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was really nice. And he just shoved me out to the thing and I go, tired old fart with a bypass heart, banging on about the war. Batteries failing his hearing aid, never gets to hear the score. <laughs> Nobody needs breath like cheese, nothing worse, I'm sure. White as a ghost, deaf as a post, slamming the bathroom door. Loose full teeth, giving it grief, dribbling on the floor. The same old boys telling stories, heard them all before. But it's somebody's grandma, somebody's mum, somebody's grandpa, struck dumb, somebody's auntie, somebody's dad. Nobody can't be that bad. Stuck before the telly, dead before your time, brain becoming jelly. It's grown old a crime. That's the poem. (laughs) (laughs) It's such fun. Mm. Now, I love filmmakers like that. Yeah. Derek Jarman would do that. You just say, what are you going to do? And so you give something different. You give something better. All the great ones do that, the good ones. The, the, the mediocre ones start telling you what to do and directing and telling you what things mean, which was, gets my back up. You know. You What's know, your motivation? Though? Oh, fuck off. The money. The money, <laughs> the money love. The money. Oh, the money. As an artist, as the word artist sprung up there quite nicely, You've got an exhibition on right now, haven't you? I have. It finishes tonight. Oh, it's yeah. terrible timing for the Resonance listeners because... Well, it's we available on YouTube. We get, okay, so details of that. Okay. If you look up Dudley Sutton, Tommy the Tomcat of St. Ives, or maybe just Tommy the Tomcat of St. Ives... Dudley Sutton. ...on YouTube, you will come across what I subtitle... Subterranean homesick pussycat. It's just me spouting it and holding up images rather than words like Bob Dylan does. Beautiful. You know, just throwing away the image. So they're all there and the poem is there. Can I use the sound from that on the radio, do you think? Should I drop that in? I don't see why not. Okay, okay, I might consider I don't that think in it's the anybody's problem. It's anybody's. I don't mean that way. I mean, or rather no. doing it now. I don't think it's anybody's. Um... It's yours. Yeah. Oh, you mean you want me to do the poem? Well, could I do that or I could drop it in from YouTube? It's quite long, but I'll do it, certainly. Now. Do you want to do that now, then? Yeah. Great. Let's have a swig of the tea. There's not that much left, but there's no tea leaves in the bottom. Um, Tell us, hang on, before you go straight into that, you've done liner cuts, which I have to say are utterly delightful and delicious. I love liner cuts. How did you come round to liner? Well, because I'd always made... um, 
Christmas cards for years. Which I've loved receiving. Hey, yes, and I'm glad. And um, I thought, why? when I enjoy this process so much, why do I always stop in December or in November, usually in November? Why do I always stop? So when I carry on. You know, my friend Rose Hilton, who I've stayed with a lot in, in Cornwall, and now my other friend Crispin Chetwin, have always encouraged me like mad because I've got no faith at all in my ability to draw. And they say, oh, you can draw very well. So I produced these 16 lino cuts to illustrate a poem of mine called Tommy the Tomcat of St Ives. Mm. And I wanted to do a poem about a cat because there were very instant eyes, because there were a lot of very sentimental poems about cats in St. A lot. Critically sentimental. And uh, I don't like sentimentality. Mm. Uh, I want to write, is a randy, addicted, boozy, sarky, vicious. How kind of cat? Proper pussycat. <laughs> Dumb cat. <laughs> and so. Uh, and, yeah, come on, give us the poem. Tommy the Tomcat of St Ives has lived all nine of his live knives. Now he's gone behind the door, we find he's wrecked our kitchen floor, scratching snapshots of his life with claws like Jack the Ripper's knife. Then leaves a note requiring me to set them all to poetry. So here I'm rhyming Tommy's lives, how he ducks and how he dives, how he skips and how he skives, how he thinks and how he thrives, how he drinks and how he drives, and yet amazingly survives, hoping that my rhyme contrives to celebrate his lively lives. His first life goes not in his bed, but being Cornish, born and bred. It happens down Batalic Mine, where he's working at the time, keeping miners free from rats. But there's no hard hats made for cats, and when a boulder strikes his head, those rats, being rats, leave him for dead. His second goes in pouring rain. It's summer and he's off again to Glastonbury to get wet through to catch a deadly dose of flu. Although he's now two lives bereft, knowing he has seven left, Tommy raves outrageously on catamine and expose. Third time Tommy meets his match, although the railway's on his patch. The 10.15, for once on time, hauls him howling down the line, drops him in an empty carriage, stone-cold dead and labelled Harridge. When a guard demands his ticket, Tommy's ghost tells him to stick it. Life number four goes one fine day when he is surfing in the bay, when a freaky wave off Gwenver Beach drops him barely within reach of a lobster potty pulling pots, who, finding Tommy tied in knots, hauls him safe aboard his craft, then flings him back for being so daft. Catnapping on the harbour wall, bothering no one at all, when a St. Just man sits on his face. These buggers think they own the place. So Tommy forfeits number five. There's no creature could survive. Twenty stone of steaming mail produced by pasty, chips and ale. His sixth existence ends in bude, attempting something rather rude with a lively local beauty, knowing it to be the duty of a Tom to strut his stuff, even when the weather's rough. But he's mistaken in the fog, a very heterosexy dog. Ouch. Now we come to number seven on this rocky road to heaven, when a filthy, stinking, rich old bat grabs her husband. Look at that! That fur would make a perfect hat. There's many ways to skin a cat, thinks Tommy, as the husband strips him into being a fashion victim. Life number eight, still on his feet, Tommy's spraying Chapel Street. 
marking out his territory with pretty pungent Tom Cat pee. When a football player full of ale boots him half the way to hail, giving him no time to think of merrier ways to die of drink. Now we come to number nine, Tommy's starting to decline. No longer can he run away to live to fight another day. When a grocer's widow shelling peas, finding Tommy on his knees, collars him and lets him flop in the window of her shop. But St. Ives is an artist town. When a painter of renown with a berry on his bonce tells the widow that he wants to paint the window of her shop, she gets into a right old strop. This shop was painted just last week by my toy boy, blingin' cheek. No, no, cries he, it's not like that. I want to paint your pussy cat in the window in the sun. There's a contest to be won. The winning work to hang in state at our famous St. Ives Tate. I'm bound to win, as you shall see, for I am a celebrity. <laughs> When, despite his proud surmise, he doesn't win that precious prize, the famous painter roars his roar and flings the picture through the door, striking Tom between the eyes, life number nine, our hero dies. But passing through the pearly portal, he can see that he's immortal. For in the window of that shop where passers-by are bound to stop, a painting serves to eulogise Tommy the Tomcat of St Ives. That's it. That's Tommy the Tomcat's knives. Fab. Yeah. And um, have we got some images I can put up online of your line of cuts that went with that? Because that'd be really nice. Yeah. Fab. Yeah. Should we leave it there for today? Yeah. Yeah. Lovely to visit you in a new flat. We haven't got the story of the new flat yet. No, we'll do that, we'll do that when the new do. flat settles when down. When settled, because there's a feeling of not quite settled yet. No, I'm terrified that. Uh, Having been insecure for the last three years, yeah. and somebody decided to buy the building I've lived in for 42 years, tell me that I was on my bike. Um, I felt very, very insecure and very worried and very upset. Um, one of the, the things that she uh, complained to, me, to the judge about me was that I kept changing my mind, but then, Jesus, I was 79 years old, and when you threaten a 79-year-old with his house, he may change his mind. Yes. But there you are, it doesn't matter at all. It's all worked out very well if somebody doesn't come banging on the door and saying, out. I Which, guess. I think it's been settled nicely, it's not going to happen, but it'll no, take no. a while for the feelings to catch up yes. with the reality. No, it's, I've been very well looked after <clears throat> by legal aid. I was a struggle, but um, they came up with it in the end. I applied for legal aid. Legal aid has been made quite difficult mm. recently because uh, we don't want the, the poor to get above themselves, apparently. So I had this letter <laughs> from... Everything worked out fine in the end, but this is one of the struggles, one of the terrors I went through. The Legal Aid Agency to Merseyside Region 29714. Dear Mr Sutton, Thank you for completing a financial reassessment form. I didn't. I didn't because they'd never sent one. We have assessed your financial circumstances, presumably from a non-existent form, and found your yearly disposable income for legal aid as zero. Your disposable income capital as zero. You must therefore pay a single contribution from your capital of zero. Mm -hmm. Breakdown of assessment. Disposable income. Total aggregate income A. Zero. Total income deductions B. Zero. Disposable capital. 
total aggregate capital C, zero, total capital deductions, zero. Contribution calculation, therefore you will pay a single contribution from capital of zero, therefore you will pay a single contribution from income of zero. If you have not paid a contribution before, you should pay by cheque or post order, presumably for zero, mm. to the legal aid agency. Please send your payment to the Lunacy uh, Legal Aid Agency, Merseyside Region. It's quite complicated, really, it's isn't it? Splendid, yes. Yeah. So I send them zero. It's really reassuring to know that it still can work so well, the yes, system. Exactly. Up and running. <laughs> Tory Britain, 2014. Isn't that so funny? Sweet. Yeah. thing is it all worked out well in the end because you stuck by it, didn't yeah. you? You stuck with the whole yeah. thing. It was very easy to have kind of buckled under that Well, pressure. the local solicitor said to me that most people do buckle and that they were very, very they were, I had made their job a lot easier because they can go around here saying, we know an 81-year-old man who refused to give up. That's beautiful. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm very pleased with myself. Hoorah. Yeah, exactly. I suggest Finish. we come back, do some more recording. Thanks very much for coming once again, bringing your beautiful voice and a reminiscence to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM, the world's most cuddling up radio station, which I believe you agree with. I do, and I'm glad that you kept me changing the subjects a lot, which is nice. Well, it makes it more interesting. Mm. Yeah. We'll do more later. And by the way, next time, um, I want to bring some laundry. You set up a duty washing machine, is that right? Or I do some recording. <laughs> yeah, but you won't be able to record with a machine now. No, it's called special effects. Oh, poor. I've got a lot of smalls to do. Dudley, thanks a million. Are you running off? No. Listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Simon Tishko, and today's special guest was Mr. Dudley Sutton. Details of Dudley's work can be found on YouTube. You can Google Dudley Sutton and poems and Tommy the Tomcat and any terms you care to throw at that rather magnificent search engine we all use. You'll find all sorts of videos to go with it. And when the podcast of this episode goes up, there'll be a little slideshow of Dudley's latest lino cuts that we talked about today. Um, They really are delicious. And I'm going to kind of ask Dudley if there may be something along those lines available for the Reds FM fundraiser month in whenever that is. January, February, something. We'll be doing it. We hope to have some things what they called things you buy from Dudley that'd be really nice anyway special thanks Dudley this is me this is Simon thanks to everyone at Resonance 104.4 FM most exciting art radio station in the world and this is me Simon signing off for another seven days details of today's episode will be as ever online sync through iTunes or on my website being www.theculture.net follow the links, send me the feedback through the feedback buttons and look forward to catching you all next week 
Sayonara. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.